Let me pray, and then we're going to continue our study in the book of Isaiah. So, Father, thank you for the opportunity you give us to be in a book that was written 2,800 years ago, an ancient prophet, but inspired inerrant scripture, alive today. And right now, in this hour, Father, we can open up this book, and I'm asking, Lord, that it would be your Holy Spirit that would bring it to life and apply it into our life not just to increase our knowledge, but to really transform us, Father. And so we, we present ourselves to you and ask that you would, whatever you want to accomplish in each of our lives individually, Father, we present ourselves to you and ask that you would stir us and move us and grab hold of our hearts, Father. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Recently, I was having breakfast with some friends at the Paper Mill restaurant here in town. And we were, you know, discussing lightweight things, abortion, physician-assisted suicide, mental health things, lightweight stuff. And we, we were fully engaged in the conversation. You know how you just kind of lose your surroundings. And we were talking about these things and wrestling. We must have been kind of loud because a gal in the booth behind us got up and came over to us and she said, could you guys keep it down a little bit? I've got my children here and it's a little upsetting, you know, death and suicide and things like that. So, oh man, you know, you just, we lost, we'd lost track, apologized and, and then we went back to our intense conversation. I thought we were keeping it down, but then the people in the booth in front of us as they went to leave, they stopped by and they said, forgive us, we, we were overhearing your conversations. And then that gal proceeded to, for the next 20 minutes, share her views on these things. And so we're having this conversation. And then there was an elderly lady sitting to the left of us and she entered in, uh, made her comments. And I guess the, the moral of the story is, if you think you're having a private conversation at a restaurant, you are not. You are not. There, people are listening everywhere. And I got thinking, I wonder what people would have thought if I was having a conversation with God in that booth, that, that breakfast that morning. If God was there and I was, I was pouring out my heart to Him, I was, I was sharing my hurts and my needs and my frustrations. It's called prayer but having a conversation with God. And I wonder what people would have thought if they would have listened in. What would they have thought about God? What would they have thought about the person I was conversing with? Well, this morning we get to listen in on a prayer. It's Isaiah's prayer to God. And it's found in Isaiah chapter 26. So I invite you to take your Bibles and once again, we're going to go to this amazing book, the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah pours out his heart before God. Now, before we get there, just a step back in this overarching kind of theme or um, historical context. 
Remember that Isaiah is writing in about the 8th century B.C., some 700, 800 years before Jesus Christ came on the scene. And what was happening in his world? Well, maybe about 20 years prior to him writing this, the Assyrian, this ruthless, um, the savagery, brutal Assyrians had taken away the northern kingdom of of Israel off into captivity, had had decimated, had destroyed the Israelites to the north. And now, history tells us, they are coming against Jerusalem and the the southern kingdom of Judea. And that's where Isaiah was and and maybe a handful of, of some faithful followers of Jehovah God. And they see, they read the headlines, they see what's happening. They can maybe even see the the fires of the the enemy army of the Assyrians encamped around them. These were troubling times, to say the least. And these followers of Jehovah were caught in this, this vortex of doom. This was troubling times, impending disaster. But as we saw a couple weeks ago, chapter 24 of Isaiah focuses on a future time of judgment of God, of an outpouring of God's wrath and judgment, not just against Judah or Israel in the Middle East, but the entire world will be engulfed. All nations will be engulfed with the judgment, the coming judgment of God. Isaiah is a prophet. And so he speaks so much in these 66 chapters of his book of something that is yet to come. We've put this graphic up before, but there is a a near fulfillment, events that are taking place in Isaiah's own day, but there's also that far fulfillment. Now, there's a big valley in between the two, and it's a time period of, of unspecified amount of time. And sometimes the prophetic writer or speaker didn't see that that valley. What happened in his own day was probably many times thought the sum total of what was happening. But we know from Scripture, some of what Isaiah spoke was taking place in his own day, but there were things that were written down in this book that were yet to come, yet to come. In fact, we can also say, because this is inspired Scripture, that not only will Isaiah's words impact his own day, and not only will his words impact the day that is yet to come, but they can impact our own day. They can change our own life today. I think this prayer of Isaiah is a great example, and it can be very instructive for us. It's the prayer of a hurting heart. You get a sense of this heart of Isaiah starting in verse 7 as this prayer begins. Isaiah 26, verse 7, the way of the righteous is smooth, O upright one, make the path of the righteous level. And just, a, just an aside comment here, there's various translations that are used here in this congregation. I'm, I'm using here the New American Standard. You may have an NIV, NIV, you may have a King James or English Standard Version. There's going to be some differences. This is, this is really difficult um, passages. Isaiah is a very difficult book. Mine, what I just read is the New American Standard, and the prayer is, 
The way of the righteous is smooth or level. O upright one, make the path of the righteous level or smooth. Now, first of all, I want you to get a sense of Isaiah's passion for righteousness, his desire for righteousness. And we lose a little bit of that when we see in our translations the words smooth and level. O Lord, the way of the righteous is smooth. Make the path of the level of the righteous level or smooth. And I think we get, because of that translation, a little bit of a maybe a, a misdirected thought that Isaiah is simply crying out, I am so sick and tired of what's going on in life. Lord, the, the news isn't good. I, I just wish God just for for a few years, we, we, would, we could have straight paths. We wouldn't have to have all these twists and turns to life, that these mountains that we've got to climb that are these, these stumbling blocks, these road bumps that are in our path. Can't you just smooth it out? Oh, God, make the path smooth and level. I can remember a number of years ago when I was dealing with some health challenges, someone gave me Dr. David Jeremiah's book, a bend in the road, because that's what it is. You're going on a long life, and then all of a sudden, where did that come from? And then there's, you look ahead, and there's this pile of something in the path that you got to climb over. And it's like, is Isaiah just crying out, Lord, make my path smooth, make it level? I don't think he is. In fact, I think what Isaiah's saying might be somewhat opposite. The words that are translated smooth or level in some of our translations can be translated by the concept of, of rightness, make them right. In fact, there's a lot of play on words that are going on in verse 7. The way of the right one, of the righteous one, is right. O righteous one, make the path of the right one right. This is what I think Isaiah is praying. It's actually, I think, translated properly in the King James. The first phrase of the King James Version says, the way of the just is uprightness. It's uprightness. It's similar, if we went to Proverbs chapter 3, you know this verse, trust in the Lord with all your heart, don't lean on your own understanding in all your ways, acknowledge Him, that is, get to know Him. Put him first in all your ways, acknowledge him. And then the phrase says, and he will make your paths straight. Here again, I think the proper translation is, uh, he will make your paths right. Right. Or Psalm 23, you know it, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me in those, those quiet waters. He restores my soul. And then the psalmist says, he guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He, he directs me down paths that might not be smooth and might not be level. They might be rough and curvy, but they're always right. This is Isaiah's prayer. This is what he's praying for. Lord, the path of the righteous, the one who cares about you, the one who's living a life for you, they're always right. And so, Lord, God, Jehovah, 
make my path right. This was the passion. This was the heart cry of Isaiah. Now, I mean, fact of the matter is every road we travel in life, there's not a person in this room that hasn't been down a path that hasn't curved and zigzagged and, and a, a couple of boulders or a huge mound of something hasn't been in that path. But if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and you're walking with Him and your heart's desire is for Him, He puts us always on right paths. Second of all, this heart cry, this passion of Isaiah is seen in his longing for God. Look at verse 8 and 9. Indeed, while following the way of your judgments, some of your translations will say the laws, the way of your judgments, I think he's talking about what was happening and bef unfolding before his eyes, the judgment of God against the people of Israel, against the the Jewish people, as the Assyrians were coming as a hand of judgment against God, or by God against his people. And he's saying, while we are walking this path that is coming under your judgment, under your hand of discipline, under your chastening hand, O oh Lord, we have waited for you eagerly. We're looking to you. Your name, last part of verse 8, your name, even your memory, is the desire of our souls. The NIV says, my soul, in verse 9, yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you day and night. I'm eagerly seeking you. Your name and, and, and the memory of your name. And I think what it means by that is and your name and everything that makes it memorable. Everything that makes you memorable, God. I long for it. I long for your glory. I long for you to be lifted up. I long for the world to look to you and to say, man, what, a, what an amazing God you have. This is the heart cry of Isaiah. In the midst of the pain and the suffering and a world that had, had gone mad, his heart cry, the passion of his heart is, I want to be on the right path. And I want your name to be glorified. I want everything that makes your name memorable to be recalled. Here's a worshiper who's not longing for the benefits of God. He's, he's longing for God. He wants intimacy. He wants communion. He wants deep fellowship with God. What he desires is just not the handouts of God. He's, he, he wants the very person of God. His very presence. That's what mattered to Isaiah. That's what he's praying. I want fellowship. I want intimacy. I want communion with you. Even in the midst of the path I'm on that seems to be full of judgment and pain and sorrow. But I'm seeking you because you'll always put me on a right path. I can trust you for it. Now that's a contrast with the unsaved world. Look at the last part of verse 9. When the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. I think it should be translated, should learn righteousness. But verse 10, the wicked is shown favor, and they don't learn righteousness. In fact, he, has to deal un he deals unjustly in the land of uprightness. He does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. 
In contrast to Isaiah and a a righteous man's heart that's seeking the glory of God, the unsaved world seeks themselves. They'll do whatever it takes, even if it's unjust. And they have forgotten the majesty of God. They're living their life in this this shrouded gloom of darkness, self-focused. His requests begin in verse 11, though. It's not just a prayer that is expressing his heart's desire and yearning for God. He's got some requests. And again, I think in our translations it's difficult to see this, but there are four requests that he kind of in rapid-fire succession makes. Verse 11, he starts by saying, O Lord, your hand is lifted up, yet, yet they don't see it. You're lifting up your hand, but the world is blind to it. Now, here are the four requests. I think the NIV brings it out best, by the way. Here are the four requests. The first one is, so let them see your zeal for your people. It's a request. Let them see the zeal for your people. That's the first one. The second one, let them be put to shame. I think that's how the second should be line should be translated. The third one, indeed, let the fire devour your enemies. These are requests. Let the fire devour your enemies. The fourth one, verse 12, and establish peace, shalom for us, your people. Let them see zeal for your people. Let them be put to shame, the the unsaved world, the enemies. Let them be devoured by your judgment, but give us peace, shalom. Make it go well for us as we're on the right path. Now, it's requests that are for a God who would act zealously and decisively for His people. Do your righteous work in this world. But it's also requests that are not kind of pulled out of thin air. They're, they're based, these are requests that are based on, on something that Isaiah knows about God, that He's sovereign, that He's powerful, that He's good. Verse 12, the last part of verse 12, after he prays for peace, he says, since or because you have also performed for us all our works. Isaiah is saying, I'm making these requests because I know something about you, God. You have performed all our works. What Isaiah is saying is, God, I know you. And you can pull back the, pull back the curtain that may shroud your presence, but we pull it back and you are working. Behind the scenes, whatever has been done to us, In all our deeds, you have performed. You're a sovereign God. In fact, verse 13, there have been um, other masters beside you, other lords, human uh, pharaohs or, or enemy kingdoms that have oppressed us, but through you alone we confess your name. In other words, what Isaiah is saying, yeah, there have been human powers that have dominated us, but pull back the curtain. It's a sovereign God doing His work. This is the confession 
of Isaiah. The dead will not live. The departed spirits will not rise. That of the enemies. You are doing something decisively. Therefore, you have punished and destroyed them. You have wiped out all remembrance of them. See Isaiah's focus on God. Verse 15, you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have extended all the borders of the land. What Isaiah is saying here is that whatever good has happened to us as a people, Israel, the people of Israel, whatever is good has happened, you have done it. You performed it. Whatever bad has happened to our enemies, you have done it. You have accomplished it. God alone can answer Isaiah's prayer because over and over throughout the history of his people, God has been working. He's been showing up big time. Verse 16, O Lord, they sought you in distress. They could only whisper a prayer. Isaiah's humbly confessing. You know, all we could do as your people is gasp out a, a faint cry for help, a faint prayer. That, that's all we com- contributed. It's just this faint gasp of, 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 a, of a request to you. Your chasing was upon them. We're, he uses this imagery of a pregnant woman, verse 17. As the pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, she writhes and cries out in her labor pains. And thus we were before you. Isaiah is saying, you know what we were like? We were like a pregnant woman writhing in pain, crying out. That's before you, before your powerful presence. That's all we were. We were helpless. We were in pain, verse 18. We were pregnant. We writhed in labor. And we gave birth to what? Nothing. Wind, he says. Nothing. That's all we could produce. We could not accomplish deliverance for the earth, nor were inhabitants of the world born. Isaiah in this prayer is showing the utter helplessness. The reality the reality of the utter helplessness and the majesty and the power of God. God alone was working. God alone could help. So here are the people of God. They're suffering. They're beaten down. They're distressed. They're crying out to God. Their enemies are surrounding them. It's doomsday. Disaster is coming. They're caught up, however, in God's righteous work. In God's judgment, they're his faithful few, and they're crying out to God. But their passion, Isaiah's passion is, in the midst of it all, I long for you. Would you please accomplish, though, your righteous plan for our people? Now, did God answer? Isn't it true that when we pray and cry out to God so many times, the answer might be no, (laughs) or it might be yes, or it could be wait? Did God answer Isaiah's prayer? Big time. I mean, really, really answered this prayer. Because there's no gap between the end of the prayer in verse 18 and the answer in verse 19. See how God answered in verse 19? Your dead will live, their corpses will rise, and you, 
who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. In other words, God is saying, I've got you covered. I'm going to reverse the curse. I'm going to bring life out of death. There will be resurrection hope for the people of God, for Israel. Life will come. But maybe not right away. Verse 20. Come, my people, enter into your rooms and and close your doors behind you. And God tells them, hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. For behold, Jehovah God is about to come, come out of his, from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their inequity, and the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her stains. God says, I'm going to bring life. The corpses are going to be raised, but, but not quite yet. I've got some work to do. But he gives them the hope. Life will come again. It's a dramatic, verse 19 is a dramatic verse of hope for the people of Israel. Now, you know what it reminds me of? Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 37, just turn over there real quickly. About 100, 150 years later, after Isaiah's writing this, Ezekiel the prophet writes, Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 1, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass among them round about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and they were very dry. You got the picture of what Ezekiel was seeing? A valley of dry bones everywhere. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And again he said to me, well, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you, that you may come to life. And I'll put sinews on you and make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin and put breath in you, that you may come alive. And you will know that I am the Lord. Verse 7, so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. And so he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain. They come to life, and so I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them. And they came to life, and they stood on their feet, an exceeding great army. And then verse 11 says, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is perished. We are completely cut off. Ah, but God has a plan and is going to bring the dry bones back to life. This is what God was answering Isaiah. Isaiah is saying, we're helpless. We just can gasp for prayer. We're crying out to you. We want righteousness to be done. But we don't even know how to pray. We're like a pregnant woman writhing in pain. We can't even give birth. We give birth to to nothing. Oh, God, hear our prayer. And God comes in verse 19 of Isaiah chapter 26, and he says, your dead will live. 
and the corpses will come to life. Ezekiel 37, bone upon bone will come. Let me take you to one other passage. Last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 12. Another really fascinating chapter which we don't have time to unpack, but I just want to read it. I think you'll maybe catch the connections. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and her head a crown of 12 stars. Verse 2 says, And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Do you see the connection with Isaiah 26? Verse 3, then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that he might, after she gave birth, devour her child. But verse 5, she gave birth to a son, a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Verse 6, then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there would be a, she would be nourished for 1,260 days. See the connection with Isaiah 26? Not yet, but go to hide away until the indignation has run its course. Verse 7, and there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon with his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And so, verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil, Satan, who deceives the whole world. And he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, and he who accuses them before our God day and night. Now, what John is seeing here in a revelation is a day yet to come. A day that is yet to come when the woman, and it's referring to Israel, God's people, are going to experience life again and protection. It's a day when the, when the dry bones of Israel are going to come together and God is going to do a victory work. Now, back to Isaiah, Isaiah 26. Verse 20, come my people, enter into your room, close your doors, hide for a little while until the indignation runs its course. Now, chapter 27, verse 1. In that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. See the connection with the book of Revelation? God has a plan. He's going to restore Israel. God is going to come, and with great triumph, he's going to completely, fully, and triumphantly win the day and be victorious. Why? Because the woman gave birth to a child. And that's already been done 2,000 years ago. 
You see the connections with Ezekiel chapter 7 and, or Isaiah chapter 7 and chapter 9 and chapter 11? A, a child is going to be born. A son is going to be given to you. And he will be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And he will sit on the throne of his father David. He will rule supreme forevermore. The king is coming. God is telling Isaiah in answer to his prayer, the dead will live. The corpses will rise again. Leviathan will be defeated. Because God is going to answer the prayer of an ancient old prophet who prayed it out 2,800 years ago. Because he's sovereign. He's the king. He's the Lord. These passages in Isaiah... Yes, they're ancient history. And the impact at Isaiah's day is the Assyrian hordes were about to come. But he's a prophet. They're prophetic scripture about a day that is yet to come. But it's inspired scripture. It's profitable for us right now. And so I want you to put aside for a moment the coming worldwide judgment and the defeat of Leviathan. Put aside God's plan for Israel and the coming hope for the dry bones coming together. And let's focus on one man, Isaiah, and the prayer of his heart. The, the glorious conversation he had with God. For God has allowed us today to listen in to the heart cry of a godly man. And what have we learned from Isaiah's prayer? Let me mention a few things. What we have learned, I think, is that it's an expression of dependency. In fact, if you go back to chapter 26, verse 3 and 4, two verses we looked at last week, Isaiah said, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. And verse 4 said, trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. Isaiah's prayer was a prayer of trust, of dependency on God. Because if you don't trust God, you're never going to pray to Him, right? There will be no conversations with a God that you don't trust. And so Isaiah is saying, first of all, trust in the Lord. He's our rock. Who else are you going to turn to? Put your trust in Him. Why? What did we learn about God in that conversation? Because He's trustworthy. He's trustworthy. Second of all, we learn that Isaiah's prayer is an expression of humility. Humility. The requests of, Abraham, of, of Isaiah in this passage, these, these requests of, of um, let your uh, victory be sure, establish peace for us, do your work of righteousness, these requests are based on this understanding. God is powerful. God is powerful. Yes, other lords and masters may have dominated us, but behind the scenes, it was you. God, you punished and destroyed our enemies. You expanded our borders. Whatever good happened, it was you. We were before you as, as, a, as a helpless pregnant woman writhing in pain, giving birth to nothing, but you accomplished it. And so, God, do your work because we can't. Apart from you, we can do nothing. 
Isaiah's prayer is a, a prayer of humility. Thirdly, his prayer is a prayer that has the right focus. It's the focus of righteousness, of longing for right things to be done. O righteous one, O upright one, verse 7, make me walk the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Whether they are smooth or rough, whether they are straight or curvy, I just want them to be right. I just want to know that, that God, you're in my life and, and everything is being orchestrated for your glory and my good. I want to be on the path that is right. Oh, righteous one, oh, upright one, put me on that path. Man, what a prayer from Isaiah. Put me on the right path. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't ask God, give us this day our daily bread. (laughs) It doesn't mean that we can't pour our heart out to Him and say, Lord, I'm hurting And if this cup could be removed, please remove it, our Lord's Prayer. It doesn't mean that God doesn't invite us and hear us in the depths of our soul crying out, oh, I wish my path was smooth. Oh, God, I wish it was level. But Isaiah is giving us such a model prayer because having said all that, There's always this at the end of that request, but God, oh, upright one, for the bottom line, I I just want to be on the right path, and I want to know it. Whatever's right, give that to me. Why? Because, God, you are righteous. You are righteous. Fourthly, Isaiah's prayer reflects this ultimate goal It's intimacy with God. It's glory. It's the glory of His name. The prayer, the cry of a hurting heart of Isaiah was when it's all said and done, I just want to know you better. I just want to know you. I'm I'm living in the land of the dead, but I, I want you to put me on the right path, but ultimately I just want to know you. I'll wait for you eagerly, he said. I'll desire you and you only. My soul will long for you and only you day and night, he said in verse 8 and 9. My spirit will seek you and only you. It's you I want. What does it tell us about God? He's personal. He's personal. Intimately acquainted in all our ways. He knows us. He's created us. And Isaiah said, I just want to know you. I want to enter into communion with you. I want want intimacy with you. The passion, the heart's cry of this worshiper of God is not for a happy life. It's for a righteous life. It's for a holy life. The passion, the heart's cry of this worshiper of God, this Isaiah prophet, was not for the benefits of God, not for the handouts of God. It was for the the person. It was for the presence of God. It was God Himself. It's like the psalmist, Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. 
This was the prayer of a man living in troubled times. We're all about him. Hell was breaking loose. He says, God, all I want is to be on the right path, whatever that is. And I want to know you. I just want you. As we've prayed earlier this morning, as many of you know, Don Den Hartog, he's our pastor of biblical education, and his wife Patty are out helping with three little grandkids because their daughter, Don and Patty's daughter, is battling stage four breast cancer. It's a difficult journey. I'll tell you one thing. It's not a path that is smooth or straight. And it can be a challenge to even consider, is it the right one? But just a few days ago, Christy, their daughter, wrote these words. If we have portrayed ourselves as strong, we are not. We've wept many times and prayed for God's strength over and over and over. And there are days or moments where we feel as if we are being asked to trust and cling to hope, which often feels like we're just stepping out on air. Will we fall? Is there anything substantial under our feet? Waves crash on us through physical pain and emotional distress. But God's Word always nourishes. It's the greatest of all the healing components for our souls and our hearts to be ministered to by Jesus Himself. For He's the one who is strong. He's the one who's victorious. He's the one with all the courage and peace and endurance and compassion. He's the one who heals. He's the one who battles. And she writes... He's our captain, our shepherd, our physician, our rock. And Isaiah says, trust him. He's the everlasting rock. He's the God who's trustworthy. He's the God who's righteous. He's the God who's all-powerful. And he's personal. An ancient prophet facing uncertain times, a young mom in Omaha, Nebraska, facing the struggles of her life, and a God who is worthy to be worshipped, to be served, to be sought after, to be trusted. If someone we're listening in to your conversation with God this week. What kind of picture of God would they walk away with? Let's pray. In the quietness of this moment, I just want to ask you personally with your head bowed, do you know this personal, trustworthy, all-powerful, righteous God. You see, we can trust Him because 2,000 years ago is the greatest evidence that He ever gave when He sent His Son to die for your sins. He loved you so much, He gave His only begotten Son. A child was born, a son was given for you 
And we can trust this God completely because He proved His trustworthiness, His righteousness, His power, His personalness when His Son hung on the cross bearing our, our sins. And then three days later, rising from the dead. Do you know Him? Have you put your trust in Him? Because the Bible says the free gift of eternal life can be given simply when you believe that good news. That's all you have to do is believe it. All you have to do to have the absolute assurance you're going to be going to heaven when this life is over is to trust Jesus and Him alone for your eternal salvation. I invite you to do that right now. And then we're going to, as a people of God, gather together on this day of worship. We're going to continue our time of worship right now. I don't want you to get up and leave and go get kids. It's, this is, let's come into the presence of God as we're led in worship by our team. And so, Father, we bow before you. You are worthy. <laughs> You're worthy to talk to. <laughs> You're worthy to be trusted and worshiped because you're a great God. You're unfolding a wonderful plan for the ages. So lead us, Father, right now into your, into your presence as we engage our hearts, our minds, our very being in worship of you. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.